70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hola, me llamo Santiago Incapié. Soy colombiano y llevo viviendo en Corea seis años. Hello, my name is Santiago Hincapié from Colombia. I've been living in Korea for six years. My friend introduced me to KBS World Radio three years ago, and I've been tuning into its Spanish service ever since. KBS World Radio is my favorite source of news and information about Korea. It provides various content in entertainment packages with balanced point of views, helping listeners understand various social issues and Korean culture from the Korean perspective. I want to listen to more programs on Korea's culture and tradition, for example, things like how the lunar calendar works. KBS World Radio brings Korea's voice to the world. Happy 70th birthday. I wish the channel more success and hope you stay a friend and family for all international residents in Korea. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It's Friday the 8th of December and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang The National Assembly voted down four contentious bills that were recently vetoed by President Yoon, including the so-called Yellow Envelope Bill protecting labor unions. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Moody's cut China's credit rating outlook this week, citing risks over its slowing economy and the troubled property sector. We'll take a broader look at the challenges facing China for weekly economy review. And coming up for Movie Spotlight, we have reviews of Ridley Scott's epic Napoleon and a moving local ghost story called Our Season. Let's begin Career 24. The National Assembly failed to override President Yoon sang yeols veto of four contentious bills on Friday. The opposition-controlled parliament voted on the pro-Labour Yellow Envelope Bill and three bills on broadcasting laws, all of which were turned down by the President on the 1st of December. That marks the end of the road for these particular bills. Our KBS World Radio News Editor Koo Hee-jin joins us in the studio to bring us the results of the re-votes as well as our other headlines of the day. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, Zhang Ho. Now, presidential vetoes can only be overridden if the bills garner votes from two-thirds of lawmakers and are attended by more than half of all lawmakers of the National Assembly as well. Indeed. So how did it play out? Well, with 291 lawmakers in attendance, the so-called Yellow Envelope Bill was rejected in a plenary session on Friday with 175 in favour and 115 against and one abstention. The bill had aimed to limit the ability of companies to file claims against labour unions seeking compensation for damages incurred in a strike. In the same session, Parliament also rejected three bills on broadcasting laws intended to reduce 
boost the government's clout over public broadcasters. The bill seeking to uh, seeking revisions to the Broadcasting Act and the Foundation for Broadcast Culture Act were rejected both in a 177 to 113 vote with one abstention, while the revised bill of the Education Broadcasting System Act was voted down with 176 voting in favour and 114 against. The four contentious bills were passed during a plenary session by the opposition-controlled parliament on November 9th, only to be vetoed by Yun a week ago as he wielded his veto power for the third time since taking office. Still, during the same session, lawmakers approved the appointment of Supreme Court Chief Justice nominee Cho Hide in a vote of 264 to 18 with 10 abstentions. Cho will fill the 74-day vacuum in the top court that included a two-month gap after the opposition-controlled parliament rejected previous nominee Lee Gunyong in October following the retirement of Kim Yong-soo on September 24th. Meanwhile, rival parties have formally agreed to vote on next year's state budget bill in a plenary session scheduled for December 20th. Can you tell us more? Well, the chief deputy floor leaders of the ruling People Power Party and the main opposition DP signed a written agreement on Friday. De- uh, DP Deputy Floor Leader Park Jumin said that the parties have also agreed to hold additional plenary sessions on December 28th and on January 9th to handle a lineup of pending bills. While the parties have stated in the agreement that they will work to pass all pressing livelihood bills within the year, PPP Deputy Floor Leader Yang Su said the January 9th plenary session was added to reflect the party's resolve to pass the legislation. The two sides however, on the DP's push to handle a set of special council motions, one on stock ma- uh, manipulation allegations against First Lady Kim Gonyi and another on the so-called 5 billion won club linked to the Taejangdong development scandal. Uh, sticking with politics and the law, the former leader of the main opposition Democratic Party, Song Yong-gil, appeared for questioning by the prosecution over a cash bribery scandal connected to the party's 2021 leadership election. Can you tell us more? Well, Song arrived at the Seoul Central District uh, Prosecutor's Office at around 8.25am on Friday for his first interrogation on charges of bribery and illegal political funding. Prosecutors have prepared some 200 pages of questions to be put to the former DP chief. Now, speaking to reporters before entering the prosecutor's office, Song levelled accusations that the investigation is politically motivated, extended, uh, extending to searches and grillings of some 100 people connected to him, as well as separate probes due to an inability to fabricate evidence incriminating him. The former DP chair indicated his intention to refuse to issue a statement in the questioning, saying that an attempt to explain the unfairness of the case to prosecutors is futile and that he will therefore do so before a judge. The state agency suspects that Song was involved in or condoned the distribution of a total of 94 million won or 72,000 US dollars in cash to some DP lawmakers ahead of the party's convention in May 2021, where Song won the party's chairmanship. Let's turn now to the nation's economy. South Korea logged its largest current account surplus in two years as the balance remained in the black for the sixth straight month. 
in October. The nation's outbound shipments also showed an uptick for the first time in 14 months. Can you break down the figures for us? Well, according to the uh, preliminary data from the Bank of Korea on Friday, the nation's current account surplus reached 6.8 billion US dollars in October, the largest since October 2021, when the comparable figure reached 7.9 billion dollars, with the latest figure up 5.42 billion US dollars from the month prior. The country's current account surplus in the first 10 months of the year reached 23.37 billion dollars, a ways off the 27.38 billion reported in the same period of last year. Now, despite the comparative shortfall, the BOK expects this year's current account surplus to be in line with its estimate of $30 billion. Analysts say that the latest figures indicate the nation has finally shrugged off a recession-type surplus in which imports have decreased more than exports and will likely see a steady rebound in the near future. The central bank attributes October surplus to the country's seven-month positive trade balance streak and an increase in dividend income from overseas. And finally, the nominee for the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State expressed concern that North Korea appears to lack interest in diplomacy with the U.S. and Washington must therefore focus even more on deterrence. So can you expand on that for us? Well, Kurt Campbell, uh, currently the National Security Council Coordinator for Indo-Pacific Affairs, made the remarks during a Senate confirmation hearing on Thursday. Campbell said that following the U.S.'s last constructive diplomatic engagement with North Korea uh, was the aborted meeting in Vietnam between uh, Kim Jong-un and uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Pyongyang has rebuffed every effort by Washington since then to establish contact. The nominee said that the U.S. attempted creative and inventive approaches with the uh, North, citing an offer to provide COVID-19 vaccines during the pandemic and engagements on humanitarian grounds. Campbell, however, uh, said that the U.S. has been stonewalled in its attempt to deliver letters or set up meetings. That's where we're going to wrap it up for our news briefing today. Hijin, thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. Credit rating agency Moody's cut its outlook on China's government credit ratings from stable to negative, citing risks from a slowing economy and a crisis in its property sector. Moody's last downgrade was in 2017. The lowering of the credit outlook comes as the country's post-pandemic economic recovery has been sluggish amid a real estate crisis, mounting local government debts and other setbacks. Beijing said it was disappointed by the agency's decision, saying its economy is resilient. For today's weekly economy review, we'll be assessing where the Chinese economy currently stands and what it can mean for Korea down the road as well. And we do that with the help of Daniel Yu, Head of Global Asset Allocation at Yuanta Securities. Mr Yu, hello and thank you for your time again. Hello. Thanks, thanks for having me again. So first off, could you bring us up to date on the current state of the Chinese economy? What are the economic concerns facing China currently? 
Well, if you look at the overall economic growth rate, uh, it has recovered quite uh, nicely uh, after the pandemic issues. Uh, but uh, still, there is a relative concern about the growth rate not recovering to the full speed, which is well above 5%. Um, I think that um, the reason for that is because the level of the consumer debt uh, related to the property market is rising fast as a percentage of disposable income. And uh, they need to solve the problem of a lot of these real estate developers in terms of debt size. If you look at the China's biggest problem, uh, clearly is the corporate sector as well as the property market. Uh, if you look at the uh, non-financial debt as a percentage of GDP, it is one of the highest number, well above 160%, uh, which is extremely high relative to any other countries um, with this kind of size in terms of overall total GDP. So uh, clearly, uh, we need some kind of restructuring before the growth rate recovers. And the growth rate needs to come from the new area, such as the uh, the developing uh, the industries, including the uh, electric vehicles, as well as the renewable energies and AI-related uh, 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 sectors. So uh, China is trying very hard, uh, but it seems that uh, uh, they need to solve the problem of the property market issues uh, that related to the debt size. Uh, I think that is the current concern at this time. Right, and the forecast for next year has also raised concerns. The OECD estimates that the Chinese economy will only grow 4.7% next year, down from 5.2% this year. The IMF also made a similar forecast, predicting growth of only 4.6% in 2024 compared to 5.4% this year. What do you make of those estimates and how much more challenging could it get for the Chinese economy looking ahead? I think that uh, trying to achieve above 5% growth rate is probably unachievable over the longer period of time. Uh, as I said, uh, China's the total debt size has exceeded the total debt size of U.S. And U.S. is trying to isolate somewhat of China related to the advancement of the uh, AI market as well as the uh, semiconductors and all very high technology related sectors. Uh, so uh, China is trying to focus uh, in terms of uh, developing these sectors, but the cost of developing is actually causing them to increase the debt size. So I think uh, it's a question of whether they grow uh, exceptionally high and causing to become a major problem in the five years period from, from now or rather uh, satisfied with the growth rate of, say, 4% uh, over the next several years, then I think that the size of debt rising might not be as significant uh, to the extent where they might uh, uh, face a financial crisis. So I think that um, having a reasonably lower growth rate is more, makes more sense uh, because they, then they can select and develop the sectors that is very important uh, in a longer-term growth perspective. Right. Well, the state of China's economy is always a concern for the world because of how integrated it is to the global economy, particularly for South Korea, with China the largest trade partner it has. So uh, looking at these concerns and the situation with the Chinese economy currently, what should Korea look out for uh, when it comes to China's economic challenges and how concerned should 
South Korea be about some of the risks? Well, we should be concerned because I calculate that China might be faced with some kind of financial crisis within the next five to six years. Um, and unless they really solve the problem of the property developers and non-performing debt situation uh, and also falling net interest margins. Uh, if you look at Korea, Korea is also faced with the similar problems with a high level of the consumer debt level as well as corporate debt level. So uh, I think uh, if we are looking at that, then I think our relationship with China in terms of the economic size-wise, we need to reduce that. And rather, we need to focus on the relationship with the U.S. U.S. is growing very much better in terms of the growth rate as they improve the productivity ratios uh, through using Uh, AI development, as well as the IT advancement uh, and data mining and uh, the AI server-related sector, as well as the uh, EV markets and improving a lot of technical advancements. So I guess we need to make a choice where how much dependency we should we have to China versus U.S. And I think that we already made that choice to be much more focused to U.S. I think that so, therefore, we're doing relatively good. But nevertheless, we should be prepared if China is faced with some kind of financial crisis over the next five to six years. Right. That's quite a stark warning that China faces a potential financial crisis. What can or should China be doing to turn that situation around, do you think? Well, in order to do uh, turn it around, they need to solve the problems. Obviously, the biggest problem for China is the uh, property market and the property developers uh, and the corporate debt related to that. Uh, and also, uh, consumers are raising their debt level. Uh, if you look at the size of the disposable income, uh, if you look at the consumer debt as disposable income has reached 140% of GDP. So, obviously, they shouldn't be focusing about growth. They should be focusing about solving a non-performing assets and higher level of debts in terms of the corporate side as well as the consumer side. And the government needs to uh, improve the profitability of the corporations uh, so therefore they can solve their existing problems. So uh, as I said, uh, they shouldn't be focused on continue to grow above 5%, but rather uh, give up some growth rate but, uh, and improve in terms of the profitability. Well, as ever, the health of Chinese economy is going to be very closely watched next year as well. We'll see how it fares. There was one more item that we wanted to talk to you about today, Mr. Yu, and it's also related to China. South Korea is bracing for a shortage of urea after shipments of the compound from China to South Korea were recently suspended. Urea is uh, an essential compound for diesel vehicles like trucks to reduce emissions. And Korea is essentially sensitive to its supply, especially sensitive, sorry, to its supply, as over 90% is imported from China. And a shortage crisis two years ago threatened to grind the nation's logistics networks and related industries to a halt. Uh, There's been no official explanation from Beijing over the current suspension, but whole government sources say it may be related to China's own domestic supply issue and not a formal export control measure. South Korea only has a three-month supply currently. What's your take on this issue, Mr. Yu, and what does it say about South Korea's dependence on China? Well, if you think about these issues, it keeps coming back, uh, which means that we need to solve it from the root of the problem. 
meaning that uh, we need to move away from diesel engines to uh, probably the electric vehicles. Uh, so U.S. is doing that very aggressively, and Korea needs to do that. Uh, meanwhile, obviously, our dependency on diesel engines and uh, truck-related, uh, so therefore the, our dependency on urea supply is all related to China. But obviously, this is not something that we should keep it doing it till the uh, longer period of time. So uh, once again, we need to do restructuring, uh, and the restructuring should be focused on the next generation of technology, uh, which is the electrical vehicles as well as the renewable energy areas. So more and more we have that dependency on those areas, then more and more dependency of uh, urea supply or diesel engines will be reduced. So I think that that should be the long-term goal of it. But of course, in the short-term period, uh, of course, this cost is important. So therefore, we need to diversify in terms of the source of that. And so not just uh, on dependency to China as high as 90%, but we need to reduce that down to significantly. I think the Korean government is doing that properly. Uh, so I think it needs to be well planned and it should be step by step. And first, reduce the dependency on China. Secondly, reduce the dependency on diesel engines. Okay, we're going to have to wrap it up there. We've been speaking to Daniel Yu from Uanta Securities. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 25.78 points, or 1.03% on Friday, to close the week at 2,517.85. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also jumped, climbing 17.17 points, or 2.11%, to close at 830.37. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 18.51 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,306.81. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We've come to Korea Trending Now, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have joining us in the studio, news editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. It's good to see you too, Jango. Let's get straight into the first story, and it's to do with something we covered on News Briefing yesterday. It's the results of the college entrance exam which was announced yesterday yes the 2024 college scholastic ability test or CSET or Suning that's what we called it only one exam taker got a perfect score in all subjects this time um, yeah her name is Yuria and we got to learn more about her exam experience in an interview with a news outlet that got released Friday right so the identity of the test taker who received this remarkable perfect score was revealed and what makes her accomplishment even more amazing is that many exam takers this year said that this Sunung, even without the so-called killer questions, was definitely not easy, uh, with some even saying that it was harder than previous editions in some aspects. So can you tell us more about her? Well, the 19-year-old hails from Hanguk Academy of Foreign Studies. The private boarding school located in Yongin is the first Korean high school formed by a collaboration between the government and the university. This is actually her second CSAT. Last year, she made some mistakes that cost her the grade she needed to get into a med school of her choice, so she decided to have another go at it. You said this time she was quite confident that she got all the answers right, but 
was a little bit worried that she may have made some mistakes when filling in the answer sheets because, you know, it can be really repetitive and small. Right. Even if you're confident, you <laughs> probably wouldn't dare to think that you got a perfect score. Right. But that is what she ended up getting. So I'm sure people will be thinking, how did she do it? Did she share any helpful tips on preparing for the big test based on her experience? Surprisingly, they're very normal uh, guidelines, like eat your vegetables, <laughs> stay healthy and hydrated. Uh, she first clarified that she was never at the top of her school, so it still feels unreal to have this result. Yu feels the most important thing is time management. For example, allocating extra time and thoroughly reading the questions, no matter how simple and direct they may seem, stay humble, uh, stay uh, cautious, <laughs> and understanding the essence of the set questions as well. Uh, solving questions over and over again through mock exams before the big day also helps a lot. Having a clear set routine helps a lot according to you as well she maintained the same pattern of studying in private academies and libraries between 7 30 a.m and 10 p.m on weekdays and resting on weekends she emphasized the importance of resting and recharging as she would use the weekends to catch up on sleep or relax by watching movies with her parents well congratulations to her i'm sure her and her family are thrilled with this impressive feat and hopefully she can get into medical school now as well let's uh, move on to our second story what do you have for us Around a week ago, we covered how an off-duty nurse saved a person's life in a department store elevator. It's happened again, this time on a mountain. According to fire authorities on Friday, four off-duty nurses saved a man's life, this time while hiking. Oh, wow. So not just one, but four uh, nurses uh, taking action. It's a good thing that the right people with the right training were at the right place at the right time. Right. It's the reverse diehard if you remember that movie. Uh, exactly a man in his 50s collapsed due to cardiac arrest while climbing Pukasan Mountain on the 24th of last month. The four nurses that work at a university hospital in Seoul who were also hiking there heard a cry for help and rushed to the scene. They immediately performed CPR. The Mountain Rescue Squad and the 119 Rescue Team were then dispatched and they used a helicopter to take the man to a nearby hospital. Okay, so this happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, what's the man's condition now? Well, it turns out he was suffering from angina, and it was crucial that he received proper first aid treatment immediately when he collapsed. He is better now, and he remembered to thank the nurses for saving his life. Officials, including the rescue team, gave high praise to the Good Samaritans for their prompt response, as they believe the outcome could have been fatal without their actions. According to the National Health Insurance Service, more than 710,000 Koreans were diagnosed with angina in 2021, a huge spike compared to less than 646,000 in 2017. Chest pain or shortness of breath when doing strenuous activities like working out or climbing stairs could be signs that the person suffers from this condition. Well, it's great to hear that the man is doing well and that Korea has such great nurses who are able to jump into action at any time. OK, let's continue on to our last story. What else has been trending? A Squid Game immersive event. Can you believe that? Uh, it lets participants <laughs> experience what it's like to survive the trials, and it was opened in Los Angeles. Right, so this comes on the heels of the explosively popular Korean series from already two years ago now. Mm -hmm. Incredible. And uh, the recent reality show based on the series uh, that was uh, released. So tell us more about this uh, survival experience. Well, it's held inside a television studio. The experience comes complete with cutting-edge technology. You get to greet the iconic masked men, then tackle a series of escalating challenges, accumulating points as you advance. Winners will get a free mask and can have drinks at the VIP lounge and experience 
what it's like to be on top of the food chain. On Wednesday, it, when it first opened, participants from varying age groups, from teenagers to those in their 60s, jumped right in. It's scheduled to run until late January, but it could be held longer if there is a growing demand for it. Okay, so it's essentially a, a sort of special pop-up event then. I am curious, can you tell us more about what kind of challenges await the participants? Well, the challenges are similar to the ones in the series, but without the deadly end. The first game is the Glass Bridge. Contestants must memorize what tiles light up before crossing. Other games include stealing opponents' marbles, and of course, one of the most memorable challenges, red light, green light. Altogether, the process takes around 70 minutes, and each participant wears a numbered wristband that buzzes if they do die in the game. Yes, quote-unquote die, we should say. <laughs> uh, it's been more than two years, as I said, since Squid Game took the world by storm, but I guess viewers are hungry for more. Yes, indeed, and they're eagerly waiting for season two, which will be available on Netflix sometimes next year. And not much detail has been unveiled other than the big names that have been, been added to the mix, including Im Shiwan, Kang Hanul, Yang Dong-gun, and T.O.P. or Top, the former member of Big Bang. And on Thursday, director Hwang Dong-hyuk provided a sneak peek by showing parts of the set for the new season to reporters. He said he feels the pressure and is working harder than ever to meet the growing global expectations. Okay, that's where we're going to wrap it up for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Daniel, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. It's time for our Friday feature now, Movie Spotlight, where we review some of the latest releases at the Korean box office and online. And providing us with their expert insights are our two film critics. First, we have Jason Beshevis. Jason, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, jang And we have Darcy Paquette with us as well. Darcy, hello to you too. Hi. So we begin with one of the most epic Hollywood releases of this season this week. We begin with Ridley Scott's Napoleon, which opened in Korea on Wednesday, two weeks after its North American release. It has the same name in Korean. It stars Joaquin Phoenix as the French emperor and military commander and Vanessa Kirby as his wife, Josephine. The film covers the period between the execution of Marie Antoinette in 1793 up to Napoleon's death in 1821. So, Jason, can you tell us more about this film? Yeah, sure. So, uh, Napoleon, uh, who doesn't know who Napoleon <laughs> is? Um, but yeah, complex uh, historical figure uh, who's, you know, somewhat idolised or villainised for somewhat you know, 200 years since uh, his death. And so the film uh, focuses on, yeah, the rise and fall uh, of Napoleon. So it follows his, you know, his famous military victories uh, and also his defeats. Uh, and kind of running alongside that is, uh, is what's portrayed as the intense relationship with his wife, Josephine. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we've got Walking Phoenix who, who plays uh, Napoleon, uh, and um, he's, I mean, he very much kind of, I mean, he, adhering to his persona, somewhat difficult to kind of um, connect with in a way, but it's certainly a very, you know, intense performance. Uh, it's directed by Ridley Scott, so, you know, he's fa the famous British filmmaker who behind Gladiator, Kingdom of Heaven and 
you know, countless other films. But yeah, you know, these historical epics, there's only one really Scott. And when it comes to, <laughs> you know, these battle, se- you know, battle sequences, you know, they're incredibly dynamic, uh, visual, mm. visually impressive and, yeah, quite gory. Um, and we also get... Um, yeah, I mean, we see these quite interesting scenes played out at the French uh, royal court, which is quite fun. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it doesn't betray, um, yeah, the, the French kind of, uh, yeah, this this particular court in a particularly um, good manner. And it's it's it's, cu- it's, it's um, curious to read. I've been curious to read the response actually by French historians. It's not being glowing. Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, that, but yeah, it's it's pretty much all in English as well. Okay. Uh, so. Um, yeah, not unlike, you know, Gladiator. We'll get to that aspect uh, about historical accuracy in just a little <laughs> bit. But Darcy, the success of many biopics uh, hang on the performances of their leading stars. And it looks like Napoleon is no different, really. Joaquin Phoenix is one of the most uh, acclaimed actors in Hollywood at the moment after his uh, starring performances in films like The Joker and Master. How does he depict the figure of Napoleon here? I mean, it's funny. It's it's very unromanticized. I think is the first thing we can say about it. And you know, Napoleon is a figure that obviously many people have kind of put on a pedestal in different ways, and people have looked up to him as this kind of military hero and everything else. And uh, even those who have hated him have kind of romanticized what he stood for in in some ways. But um, I think there was a conscious effort on the part of the you know the actor and also the director to to take that element out of it and to present him more as, uh, you know, not an ordinary figure, but certainly a, a realistic figure and someone who has their ups and downs. And, you know, at times he comes across as almost like a child in some ways, like kind of throwing these tantrums and, uh, I mean, showing these sides of himself that are, it's not so much that they're vulnerable, but that, um, you know, not particularly impressive in in any way uh and so in that sense you know it's a performance that's slightly cold it's hard to connect with it emotionally Mm. and you know in a way you could see that as either a strength of the film or a weakness of the film depending on what you come to the film with in terms of your expectations uh certainly it um it's not this kind of rousing performance that you know you can kind of get behind emotionally and uh, you know, ride the waves of his, you know, dramatic career in that sense. It's more of a kind of sit back and, uh, yeah, I guess more of a uh, thinking performance in that sense. Okay. So then, Jason, what did you think? Ridley Scott, he has famously made some undisputed masterpieces in his and, time. And some real turkeys, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> yes. So where does this film then sit? Uh, somewhere in between, uh, yeah. Really, Scott is—he's he's a legendary figure. Obviously, as a film film director, he's made films such as Alien, Blade Runner. You know these undisputed classics. Um, but he's not a writer, so um, you know his best films he didn't write, uh, and I'm not sure he has the best eye for a script. Um, here, it's it's kind of yeah, it's middling. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, you've got these very um, very well staged set pieces, which. I mean, and not surprising, this is Ridley Scott. It's a bit more violent than I was expecting, actually. And it kicks off that way. Um, But I guess one issue I had with it, it just covers so much of his life, like, as this military figure. And it just just kind of races past. Mm. And... uh, 
I found that difficult to digest because I felt like I didn't really get to know Napoleon, partly because he is a somewhat, well, certainly Walking Phoenix plays a very kind of cold character and he's not very accessible. Um, but yeah, it's just, he's going from one battle to the next. Um, and uh, I think I would have rather, he, he would have kind of focused on, you know, a certain battle like mm. Waterloo or something right. like that. And it does culminate with the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, and we know that's coming. And of course, it's it's all very spectacular. Um, but I came out feeling a little bit disappointed uh, because at the end of the day, it is very conventional. I mean, it's it's chronological. Um, and yes, it's it's well put together. But ultimately, I you know, I didn't come away thinking, mm. wow, that was a masterpiece. It's certainly not one of his masterpieces, but, okay. you know, it's, it's okay. Darcy, what did you think? And what about the issues that we mentioned earlier about historical accuracy that's been making headlines recently, especially since Ridley Scott himself hasn't been particularly, shall we say, diplomatic <laughs> when <laughs> asked about such yeah. concerns? It's funny. Yeah, I mean, people kind of raise questions about his portrayal of the Battle of Austerlitz, for example, and... You know, he kind of portrayed it as uh, luring the the other army out onto the ice and then firing the cannons at the ice. And um, when people said, you know, it didn't really seem to have been that way, it's like, well, it could have happened that way. Actually, that's one of the best bits of the film. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was dramatic. Yeah, yeah. It uh, was so one other problem I have with it is that I get that people don't want to watch film with subtitles. Uh, but but the issues is that they're all speaking English, and then you have these random, you know, other languages kind of creeping in. Right. And then sometimes it's difficult to work out who's who, what country. <laughs> <laughs> and, okay. Especially um, when the British and the English. Yeah, are... it's just just weird. <laughs> it's just like yeah. super weird. You've got like well-spoken, you know, French and well-spoken English people speaking English, in you know, uh, kind of public school English, and it's just it just <laughs> kind of drives me crazy. Uh, that kind of, I get right. it that people don't watch films with subtitles, but it's it's yeah be at least be consistent just have the whole thing in english right uh, you were saying darcy yeah i mean it um yeah there's a scene where <laughs> napoleon fires cannons at the pyramids and i'm like did he really do that and so after the film i did some searches and found out, no he didn't do that at all but there were rumors that he had shot the the nose off the sphinx but that's also completely untrue mm. Uh, yeah, so don't go into it expecting a history lesson. Uh, don't go into it expecting a really exciting and mm. dramatic film. I mean, people who like this film, I think, have been mostly taken with Joaquin Phoenix's performance and uh, the way that it gives you things to think about and that it's so different from a typical biopic. Uh, but the, the storytelling itself is is fairly typical. And I think, I mean, on the whole, I agree with Jason that it's okay, but not a film that I'll be too excited to see again. Apparently okay. there is a much longer version that oh my might be God. released on Apple TV <laughs> in the future. <laughs> we'll see. Right, like we saw with Baz Luhrmann's Australia recently. Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, well, we'll see how Korean audiences yeah. react to uh, the film. Napoleon is out now in Korean cinemas. Uh, our second film this week is a Korean drama fantasy centered around a troubled mother-daughter relationship. The English title is Our Season, but the Korean title is... Samire uh, Shuga, which translates to Three Days of Vacation, is by director, veteran director uh, Yuk Sang Hyo, and it stars Kim Hae Suk and Shin Mina, and it currently occupies a second place at the box office behind Twelve Twelve The Day. Darcy, can you introduce us to this one? Sure. The main character of the film is played by Kim Hae Suk, and she's actually dead. <laughs> she passed away three years before the story begins, and so we meet her at first in the afterlife. 
And she's been granted special permission to travel back to Earth just for this three-day holiday uh, as an observer. And so she can't communicate with anybody on Earth. She's just kind of hovering, in a sense, uh, observing people. But she is anxious to see how her daughter has been doing. And in this, you know, vision of the afterlife, you know, she hasn't, it's not like she's up in heaven watching everything happen. She, she doesn't know how her daughter has been in the three years since her death. Uh, but she had high hopes for her daughter. Uh, you know, she had a professor position teaching mathematics at UCLA. And so she's sort of surprised when she gets down to earth and realizes that her daughter's kind of in their family home in the countryside. Uh, she's just starting up this kind of very humble restaurant, like this Beckban restaurant. And, um, and she seems not to be in a good place. She seems depressed and, and so in the course of observing her over these three days, she learns more about her daughter's current situation. She learns more about kind of the lingering trauma of her childhood and her upbringing. Uh, and a lot of emotional scenes kind of follow. Jason, Just it's a few. <laughs> well, it's an intriguing concept, essentially a ghost story where the ghost is simply observing the, the living. Yeah. Are there any other Korean films that compare, do you think, in recent years? And what did you make of it? Uh, abs- yeah, absolutely. I was watching this film like within the first twenty, well, first ten, fifteen minutes. I was like, "Oh come on, this is Little Forest," uh, because um, <laughs> uh, it's really blatant as well, actually. Because basically, in both films, you have this female character who moved to the the countryside uh, to their their mother's home. Uh, and they start cooking all these dishes and you get really, really hungry. And, <laughs> and, and what, the thing is, it kind of romanticizes rural life in Korea because the thing is, most young people, they move to the cities rather than the other way around. Mm. Um, and uh, so, you know, you watch a film like Little Forest and it makes you feel hungry and it makes you want to live out in the middle of nowhere. And it's kind of almost like what working title do, you know, with those mm. films that kind of romanticize UK life, be it in London or outside. Um, and that it kind of starts off that way. It becomes lesser as, as the film progresses. Um, but yeah, as Darcy, Darcy mentioned, uh, it does get very sentimental <laughs> um, because I mean essentially you've got these two two characters you've got the mother figure and then you've got the daughter figure and they've kind of they kind of drifted apart and um, she passes away the mother passes away and then I think that you know the daughter feels guilty and then you have these kind of scenes where they're kind of um, reliving their past and mm. um, yeah it gets very emotional and she's yeah the daughter played by Shimina played very well by Shimina uh, she's kind of realizing the cost that her mother paid, you know, in, in, in ensuring that she was able to get the ed- her education and, right. and all okay. the rest of it. So I think for audiences, I think can really perhaps connect with it, particularly particularly older audiences. I can see kind of mother, mothers and daughters going to watch this film. It's very very commercial, uh, unashamedly so. And so I think critics will not necessarily deride it, but I don't think they'll be particularly fond of it. Whereas general audiences hmm. might actually quite respond to it you know in a way okay. certainly when i the screening i went right. to i could hear people crying and actually you know i kind of got drawn in as well you know <laughs> knowing that it, you know it's it's it is it just about very... cracked your stone well yeah it knows <laughs> critic heart it, it, it knows its audience very well and it's the kind of film that could do well right. in yeah. korea right uh, had it you know if there was a, a theatrical market that was thriving right, right now but uh, right but yeah it's uh, it's it's very local Darcy, did it break your uh, critical uh, exterior? 
Well, I mean, I was feeling different things at the same time as I was watching it. Um, I mean, like Jason, I was kind of overpowered by the little forest similarities. And I'm thinking, <laughs> yes. God, this is everything that Little Forest has except a dog. And then sure enough, and then the, middle, the dog, the dog comes out. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, and it reminded me of just how much, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Little Forest. And I, I think that I that Forest, film yeah. is really kind of magical in the way that it mm. it takes this very simple story and makes it work so well. Uh, and... So yeah, it did suffer from comparison in that, you know, as I'm watching this film, I'm thinking back to, to Little Forest and that's unfair and perhaps in one sense, but you know, if it right. resembles it sure. so strongly, then, um, I did like the acting quite a lot. Uh, Shinmana impressed me. She's great. She's, uh, she's, she's an underrated actress. I mean, yeah, she's, she's, a, okay. she's obviously very attractive, but, uh, and so there's so much focus on her appearance, <laughs> but, but she is a really, really talented actress. Yeah. And I think she's getting better as time goes on. Yeah. So. Yeah, she's great. Um, and yeah, I think that, I don't know, the, the screenplay wasn't quite as strong as some other, some other films too. I mean, to me, okay. it pulled me into a certain extent, but I think that, you know, the dynamics of the story, there's something fundamental of one character just kind of sitting and observing where because they can't really interact, mm-hmm. there's a limit to how much, mm. you know, the, the drama, the scene can play out. Um, and, but, but on the whole, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't dislike it at all. Um, I'm glad that I watched it. And um, yeah, it's okay. yeah, it's middling. Yeah, it's been a middling <laughs> week. <laughs> okay. Once again, it's called Our Season, and that's where we're going to have to wrap it up. Jason Darcy, thank you as always, and we'll see you again soon. Yeah, take care. Yeah, have a great weekend. Way down among Brazilians, coffee beans grow by the billions, so they've got to find those extra cups to fill. They've got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. You can't get cherry soda. I'm Barista Omburam, and the winner of the 2023 World Barista Championship. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. No tea. It's time for our Friday closing segment now, next week from Seoul, where we look at what's coming up in the days ahead. And joining me in the studio for that, it is our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you too. Okay, so what's the first thing we should look out for? So President Yoon Suk-yeol will make a four-day state visit to the Netherlands at the invitation of King Willem Alexander from Monday to Thursday. He will be accompanied by First Lady Kim Gun-hee. He will actually become the first South Korean president to make a state visit to the Netherlands since diplomatic ties were established in 1961. Okay, so it sounds like a meaningful occasion. Mm. Uh, Let's go through a couple of the events that President Yoon will participate in. Sure. On Tuesday, he will attend a welcome ceremony hosted by the King and Queen Maxima and will then lay a wreath at the War Memorial in Dam Square. Also on Tuesday, Yoon and the King will visit the headquarters of top chip-making equipment manufacturer ASML in Veldhoven. During the visit, the two will discuss strengthening bilateral cooperation in semiconductor supply chains and technological innovation. And on Wednesday, the South Korean president will visit The Hague for a joint meeting with the leaders of the Dutch parliament and will hold talks with Prime Minister Mark Rutte before participating in a joint press conference and signing various MOUs. A government lunch attended by the king will follow. Yes, earlier this week, he said the visit will help strengthen semiconductor cooperation between the two countries and contribute to the development of South Korea's defence industry and exports. So I think we can expect progress to be made on those fronts. Uh, Let's continue on. What's the next thing we should look out for? Uh, Cafes exhibiting wild animals such as raccoons and meerkats will be banned from next Thursday. 
The ban comes after the Korean government made amendments to the Act on the Management of Zoos and Aquariums and the Wildlife Protection and Management Act on Tuesday. So now with the changes, only existing registered zoos and aquariums are allowed to exhibit wild animals. But for small business owners who already exhibit wild animals, if they file a postponement report with the local government by next Wednesday, they will be granted a four-year grace period. That means they can exhibit the animals they already own until December 13th, 2027. So you won't see any new businesses popping up from next week, but it is possible that these cafes won't disappear straight away. Okay, so what is the punishment for individuals who violate these regulations? They are subject to imprisonment for up to two years and a fine of up to 20 million won. So that's around 15,000 US dollars. Also from Thursday, it will be illegal to pet, ride or interact with animals in ways that could cause them stress. Those caught doing that could receive a fine of between 1.5 million won, so that's 3,000 US dollars, and 5 million won, which is nearly 4,000 US dollars. Yes, such raccoon cafes and meerkat cafes had been popular in recent years, but Mm. the health and welfare of the animals had always been a concern. Okay, we'll continue on to our last story. What else? Or should we keep an eye out for next week? Well, the Korea Baseball Organization will hold its annual Golden Glove Award Ceremony on Monday evening at the Convention and Exhibition Center in Seoul. The ceremony is held every December at the end of each KBO season, and awards are given to the best overall players at each position. The LG Twins have more nominees than any other club this time around, with a total of 12 players looking to win a prize. This is not really a surprise, as the Twins ended a 29-year Korean Series title drought last month. Okay, and who's the favourite to grab the Golden Glove? So there is Eric Fedi. He was the regular season MVP for his performances with the NC Diners. If he wins, it will most likely be his last KBO award. That's because he is returning to Major League Baseball after signing a two-year deal with the Chicago White Sox. Okay, we'll see if he does win that final award on Monday. In the meantime, we'll wrap it up there. Richard, thank you for that roundup, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. And that's where we wrap it up for our show today as well. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time next week on Monday as usual. In the meantime, we hope our listeners have a great weekend. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye.